bless you. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. We, as uh, Christy said, we're in the eighth week of a series called Gravity, and I remind you that <clears throat> a central proposition of this series is that gravity is an elemental uh, part of our life, and any three-year-old can understand it. They drop something, it falls to the ground, but it's profound. There are things that you can do with gravity. The more you understand it, the better you understand it, the more you're able to construct by getting gravity. And we've made the choice to say that the gospel, that there is the story of God coming to rescue humanity, is like gravity. It's so simple I can explain it to a three-year-old, that God loves them and offers them forgiveness, but it's so complex and profound that it influences every single part of our lives. And today will be, I think, uh, an illustration in that, whether or not you are somebody who is exploring Christianity from the very basic point, I think it will seem to you to be right on point with where you are. And if you're somebody who's been a follower of Jesus for 30 years or more, I think you will discover it is right on point with where you are. It certainly felt that way to me as I was exploring it this week. Well, I, I love sports, but I don't like sports books because they're written by athletes. And uh, they're normally not Pulitzer Prize winners. You know, recently I read a book about sports, but it was How Soccer Explains the World, and it's really about geopolitics, not about an athlete. Uh, Most athletic books are written by, like, Wayne Rooney, who's an English soccer player. He wrote a book, his autobiography. He's 22. He wrote an autobiography. He turned pro when he was 16, and it's written like he turned pro when he was 16. However, recently my wife read a book called Open by Andre Agassi, the former tennis player. And she came to me afterwards and said, you've got to read this book. It's, it's not about tennis. Tennis is the vehicle through which this story is written. But it's not about tennis. It's a powerful story of somebody facing issues of life, really in a pressure cooker. And so I picked it up and I read it in two days. I, I really felt at points like I was goofing off because I couldn't put it down. It was a fascinating fascinating book, which at Nan's suggestion as we explored, I I, I think I want to turn it into a a series of messages because there's just so much in it. It is so rich watching just one person walk through uh, their life. And it's it's extremely well written, quite quite honestly. And he turned pro when he was like 15. And it's somehow it's extremely well written. Uh, Anyway, there's this one section and Agassiz was bashed a lot early on in his career. If he, if some of you will remember it well. He was When he first hit the, the scene, I was in my late 20s. He was in his late teens. And he did a commercial for Canon that the caption was, Image is everything. And people immediately plastered that on top of this kid and said, Oh, that is Agassiz. All style, no substance. Image is everything. And one of the things they bashed him on was his entourage that he had, he was one of the earliest ones sort of to have a posse. And he had his brother, and he had his coach, and he had his fitness guy, and his girlfriend. He had all these people around him, like five or six people that traveled with him. And people all read that as, oh, here's Agassiz, he's got to have his entourage, you know. He's so into himself, he's so self-absorbed that he has to uh, walk around with this troop of people. And in a very revealing look at himself, he, he, he said, you know, it, it stung me when people said that. But the truth was, here I am playing tennis. And from the moment I began playing tennis, I felt totally isolated. He said, there's no other sport where you feel so isolated. I'm standing on one side of the net. My coach can't even speak to me or it's a penalty. And it's just me on one side of the court. And if for him, it was a picture of his entire life. And he said, all I wanted was somebody around me. 
I was not looking for an entourage. I was just trying somehow to end this constant sense of being alone. And so, he formed an entourage in order to fill that gap. But it gets more complicated than that. It's more complicated than pulling a few people around you. In the movie Iron Man, truly a cinematic classic, I actually do love Iron Man. You can bash me all you want, you know, but I love Iron Man. Yes, the sequel's coming out next month, and I'm quite ready for that. Anyway, in Iron Man, there's a fascinating moment where Tony Stark has everything, really, and it's admit it, no matter how you feel about materialism, it is, it is still fascinating and somewhat, you live vicariously watching the early parts of that movie where he has literally everything. He has the house on, it's not just a house in Malibu, it's the house on a cliff on Malibu that's totally automated. He has more money than he knows what to do with, he can get any girl that he wants, he sort of flits through life with everything. And then when he is kidnapped, he's with a man named Jensen, and they're talking about their lives, and Jensen's talking about his family. And he looks at him and says, so, Tony, who's waiting for you? And he's sort of stumped, and he says, Tony Stark, the man who has everything and nothing. So he had pulled people around him. And yet, still, in that moment, he was caught off guard with this sense of being alone. And still, it gets more complicated. It's a philosopher, a German philosopher named Martin Heidegger, who said that we are beings alone in the world. That in the end, when you strip everything away, when you strip all the you know, accoutrements around our life and you pull them apart, all the accessories, we are beings who are alone in the world, who experience not just momentary isolation, but a cosmic sense of being alone and disconnected. And this becomes a powerful force that drives our life and drives our decisions. And some things that we do can help to bridge that cosmic sense of aloneness, and other things actually make it worse. And sometimes it's the same activity in a different place. I'll be blunt. If you are having sex with the partner that you love, and you're able to look at them the next morning, and they're still there, and you realize that they're going to be there, throughout the next days and weeks and maybe your entire life, that is an act that can bridge the sense of cosmic isolation. Not completely, but it addresses it in a way that brings some level of healing. But honestly, if you're having sex with someone and you look at them in the morning if they're still there, or they look at you and realize... I'm not sure they're going to be there for five more minutes, much less a year or two or five or 20. Then you have just deepened your sense of cosmic isolation. You've made the breach more. Human beings were made for connection. Connection at a deeper level than we often believe, and it drives us. So much so that in the beginning of the Bible, God is speaking to a solitary individual, and he said, it is not good for this guy to be alone. This is not a good thing. The gospel was intended to end cosmic isolation. It was intended to end aloneness. And I want to show you how this morning. There's a passage in the Gospel of John, which is one of the four accounts of Jesus' life. 
And if you hear this last week, this is right after the passage we looked at last week where Jesus was talking about leaving and then told his disciples that they could follow because he was the way. And he pointed out a way to, an exclusive way to relationship with God. Shortly after that, he's speaking to them, and this is what he says. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. The passage has lots of interesting edges to it, but it's one of those passages that, quite honestly, you know how it is when you get familiar with something and you sort of skip through certain parts and they just wash over you? This passage has been like that for me, and something hit me this week that I hadn't seen before. On the surface, and this is not surfacey really, but on the surface, it's a picture of God saying, I'm not talking to you about some barren forgiveness for your life. As the Father is in me, and I will be in you. He's talking about bridging a connection and drawing very, very close to us. And what he's saying is, my presence is going to be intensely with you. What I find fascinating, though, is this. He looks at them and he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I won't leave you alone. And that's the part I've jumped over. And I've thought, okay, so he's not going to leave us as orphans. He'll be with us. That's great. God is with me. They weren't orphans. They had mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and husbands and wives and children. These were pe- they had one another. These were people who were living in community. These were people who had a fundamental connection. And yet he looked at them and he said, there's something deeper and more complicated. Apart from the connection I'm going to give you, you will feel as if you're orphans. And all your attempts to fill that will fail. Because we are made for a deep, level of connectedness. If we don't have it, we will explore other pathways to try to find it. And we will explore almost anything to try to find it. When I feel that moment of maybe on the streets of New York with a million people around me being alone. When I'm in the room with people I love and I feel those moments of isolation and aloneness, what do I do? What door do I push on? I'll push on food. I feel alone. I feel depressed. I feel disconnected. I'll eat. There's no part of my brain that believes that eating will make me feel better, but I'll do it nonetheless because it's something. I push on that door. Push on sex. Somebody will pick up a magazine and pornography will be the door they push on to end that sense of feeling isolated. It's as easy as a screen, a magazine. I'll push on that door to end this feeling that somehow I'm disconnected. I'll push on a relationship and I'll pull it really too close. I will attach myself firmly to someone 
I'll push that door. I'll try drinking. I'll push that door and see if that will end this sense of aloneness. There are innumerable numbers of doors we will push. And in those, those moments, whether we recognize it or not, there's something that's going on at a deeper level. There is a cosmic sense of disconnection that nothing quite seems to fill. And so we just keep pushing on doors to try to make it go away. And what God would say is there is a different way. There's a different pathway. This is important. There's a passage in later on in the Bible. It's in the book of Ephesians, which is the, a book written to the church in Ephesus. And this is what the writer who's named Paul says. Do not get drunk on wine. And, and this is not about wine. You'll see where it goes. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Here's the important part of that. If you are somebody who's a follower of Christ, if you're not, we'll we'll talk about that later, but if you're somebody who's a follower of Christ, then you have a sense that you're forgiven and that God is with you. And sometimes that feels as significant as reading a verse which says God is with you. Okay. And yet it doesn't appear to impact your life in any way. It hasn't really ended your sense of feeling alone or disconnected. You just know some things that are true. God has forgiven you, and he's with you. The, the passage here, and this is a series of things. We look at it later in, in, in uh, Ephesians 5. There's a series of imperatives. Imperatives means go do this. There's a series of imperatives. And this one, it says, you, go be filled with the Spirit. In other words, you can actually push that door. It's not simply going to happen. By the fact that you were forgiven, it's not simply going to give you a fullness of the presence of God in your life. You actually have to push on that door. And if you do, then you will experience it. But the tendency is to go, no, I'll get drunk on wine. And it really, it can be anything. This is, I think, I gotta be careful. I hate to say extreme statements, but this is the most important thing you'll ever hear. No, I'm just kidding. This is a critical component of how, quite honestly, we screw up our lives. Is that, let's say you're a Christian. Let's just say, for the sake of the argument, you're a Christian. You believe Jesus died for you. That's awesome. And then you know that you're supposed to start living better, right? Not supposed to sleep around. Not supposed to get drunk too often. You're not supposed to cheat, steal, lie. You know, you got a series of things you're not supposed to do. Okay. Well, now you're forgiven. You're a Christian. You're not supposed to do that. And then... You get faced with the temptation. And it's not as simple as a temptation. It is all that other stuff, this cosmic sense of being disconnected that is profound, and now you're faced with the temptation. And all you have, all you have to defeat that is, I shouldn't do that. That lasts really long. I should do better. I shouldn't sleep with that really hot blonde. I shouldn't drink too much tonight. That lasts a real long time. The question is, what door are you going to push on? We believe that Christianity is God forgave you, gave you a clean slate, 
and now you try harder. And when you try harder and fail, that's okay, because now you'll be forgiven. And what this leads us is to this, this cyclical life of never really moving on, never really seeing any progress in the things that cause, the word here in the Bible was debauchery, and they're like, what does that mean? Another way it translates dissipation, the fragmenting, the disconnection of your life. We keep doing things that fragment, that make us feel less connected and less whole. And then we go, crap, why did I do that again? Oh, and maybe I'm not supposed to say crap, so now I got that too. <laughs> and then we ask for forgiveness. <sighs> Thank God Jesus died for me because, you know, he's going to keep having to do it. And then we find ourselves still pulled back into the same things. Why? Because the only thing we have to arm ourselves against that is I shouldn't do that. The question is, what can I do? And what door will I push on when those moments hit? You know... uh, I don't normally speak about celebrities because I don't think it's fair. But uh, understand how I say this. I feel bad for Tiger Woods. I feel worse for his wife, I mean. But he's just a guy. He's a phenomenally talented, athletic guy. He's just a human being. I have no idea what went through his mind every time he walked into something. I don't. On the other hand, I can kind of guess because I know the feeling of standing on the edge of doing something that I know I shouldn't do and feeling that sense of, do I walk into this or not? And see, I know you know it too. That moment where you're about to do something that you shouldn't do and you know it's not going to be helpful or healthy, but there's something that's going on inside you that demands to be fed. So I really wonder every time he didn't jump on a plane and every time he didn't get about to take the limo, if he didn't go like, oh, come on, should I really do this again? And he was forced competing with two drives. One was the drive that said, you shouldn't do this. And the other was the drive inside him that said, but come on. I got to have something. I mean, really, does anybody really believe it was about sex? He's married to a blonde Swedish supermodel. <laughs> we, do, we deceive ourselves into thinking that what we're looking for is something better. We're just trying to end the cosmic sense of isolation with anything we can find. And so, lacking anything better, we push. We push that door. We push that door. Never works. And we forget there's another door we can push. That at that moment, standing right at the edge, should I or shouldn't I? There's a better question to ask. What's the opportunity before me? Where's life and where's disintegration? Ah, uh, yeah. I can push on things that make me whole. 
You see, we're deceived into believing that that pain, that isolation in our soul will never end. It won't end. And so we must, really, we must continue to try to feed it because there's no real remedy for it. So I must continue to try to feed it. And what Jesus is trying to tell us, and this is like, no, no, no. It's bigger than any of your relationships. It's bigger than anything else. You have a truly profound sense of being orphaned, disconnected. But you can push there, and you can actually be filled with my presence. And you can develop a sense of life and wholeness and fullness. You do not have to be captive to your desires. You can actually make your desires work for you. You can take those moments where you're standing on the edge and go, I got two doors to push. And I know this sounds like Nike, just do it. I understand that. But there is a part of this where we have to make choices. We have to make actual choices in our lives. We are not victims. We do not need to be captive to every whim that comes along. We can choose. And the truth is, we do it every day. Life disintegration. What are you going to choose? At one level, Agassiz made a decent decision. I'm going to have an entourage. Was that the end of the answer for him? Absolutely not. Did it push in the right direction? I think it did. I think it did. I think it moved him toward wholeness and away from all sorts of other things that he could have done. And at points in his life, he did do that would have caused disintegration. But the real question is, <laughs> it's not what celebrities do, but what are you going to do? Nobody can make you a victim but you. Nobody can make your choices but you. You are not trapped. You have options before you. And the greatest option of the gospel is God makes an offer not to forgive you and to tell you to act better. He makes an offer to end cosmic alienation and says, if you will push toward me, I will fill you with my presence. And then you will discover that life begins to be birthed in you, not disintegration. And then you'll start invariably pushing on better doors. And rather than staring at the specter of, should I sleep with this person or not? The should fades away and you say, I don't want to because it won't fill the void that I feel. And every time you say that, you begin to build life within you and you move closer to the whole being that you were made to be. And every time we don't, we step backwards some. You see, Christianity is not moralism. It is not a question of acting and doing more right things. It is pursuing life or pursuing disintegration. And the gospel opens up to you life. This morning is an opportunity to push. To push the right door. And so if you are somebody who is outside of faith, and I've encouraged you if you're outside of faith just to go, I'm outside of faith. I don't know if I believe this. Today's an opportunity to push. I may be wrong. It's happened. I may be wrong but I believe that everybody suffers from this same malady of feeling that sense of aloneness, sometimes in the oddest places. Today's an opportunity to 
push against that. Jesus Christ died for you, to forgive you, but also to connect you, to provide you a whole and healthy connection to your God that would bridge paths that would allow you to live a whole, fulfilling, and healthy life. And today, one choice that moves you as you stand on the edge is, do I receive Jesus and his forgiveness, or do I not? Does fear of what that will make me look like, or what path it will take, or hope of a connection that's deep and profound, which do I push on? Choice is yours. I encourage you to push on life today. If you are somebody who is a follower of Jesus, and I know many of you are, as you come to communion in just a few moments, I encourage you to make this an opportunity to push the right door. Some of you, many of you, all of you at some level are dealing with decisions, choices, idols, coping mechanisms that you live by. They are your go-tos when things are tough. They're your go-tos when life starts to disintegrate inside you. I'm encouraging you to come to communion in a different way. Not to say, God, I'll simply forgive me, but to say, God, would you, in the midst of those moments, show me that I can push away from that and push into a relationship with you and give me one, one success in one of those moments that I can build on. Take that very thing that plagues you the most and ask God today to give you one success in the midst of that that you can build on. Because life builds upon itself. Let's pray. Lord, I, I ask that you would lead us as we gather together to take communion. Speak to us, show us reality in the midst of the practical moments of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, this is what happened. The night Jesus was betrayed before he was to, to die, he looked around at his followers who were discouraged. They really were. He was saying he was going to leave. He was talking about betrayal and denial. And it just wasn't going that great. It wasn't what they had hoped for. And in the midst of that, he took a loaf of bread and he said, See this bread? And this didn't help immediately. This is my body. It's going to be broken for you. Take and eat, all of you. And then after supper, he grabbed a cup of wine. And he said, see this cup? This is, this is a new agreement between God and humanity. And it's for forgiveness of your sins. This, this represents my blood. See, my blood will be shed to forgive you. And then he did the thing which sort of brought it all together. And he said, take it. So what happened is he gives a picture of his, his death on our behalf, but then he says, take it and ingest it. And just like bread and wine are ingested within us, and he says, and now I will be with you and in you and for you for all of your life. I come to end your sense of isolation. And so <clears throat> if you were someone today who is ready to end that isolation, not ready to become a better person, ready to end that isolation and connection with God, then I encourage you to receive that today. And even as you're taking communion, just to say the simple words, God, I ask for forgiveness, but more than that, I ask for a relationship with you, which I desperately need. Would you come, and just like I'm taking this bread, would you come and fill me and come inside of me? And I promise you that he will. And then come to talk to one of us about it. If you're somebody who's not ready to make that decision today and you're still outside of faith, stay where you are. You know, it's, it's, it's not that you need, it, it's, it's that whenever we take a ritual that's meant to mean something more and we turn it into a barren duty, it, it does violence to our soul. It doesn't breathe life because we're doing something disingenuous.
And if you are a follower of Jesus, whether or not you're a part of Warehouse or not, I invite you to come and join us as we take communion. And as the communion service comes forward, I'll remind you of how it works at Warehouse, but I'll tell you if you're here for the first time, what will happen is communion service will come forward. I will serve them, and I'll give you a couple of moments to, to pray, to, to, to think, to reflect. And then I will send them out to their stations. We'll have one station up front and three stations in the back. And then as they get there and as you're ready, you simply make your way to one of the stations. They will gather you into a group of about 12. They will serve you. They will pray with you. And then they'll invite you to to take your seat again. So I'm going to give you a couple of moments. I'm going to lead us in prayer. And then you've got two or three minutes to pray and reflect on your own. Father, I pray that you would take these elements and I pray that you'd use them in our life today. Speak to us. Allow us to hear your voice loudly about love, about grace, about filling the hole and ending the isolation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a good time to open up, push on the right door. In this time of engagement, it is your opportunity to respond and to lean in to what God has said to you. And I believe that God, by His Spirit, will be here in leading each one of you. We open this part of our service with our offering because it's a way for us to demonstrate in a visible fashion what we believe, which is that God comes swarming into our life. And then what we do is we choose to push back to receive what he has done and to offer something out into the world around us, believing that in him is life. And as we move toward that life, other people experience it and experience freedom. I pray that God will meet you in the midst of this time.
Take me away. 